Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood intensivist, Dr. J. And I don't know about you guys, but I am freezing. I'm one of the lucky ones to be on call for this holiday weekend. And let me tell you, I finished at the hospital an hour ago, and I still can't feel my toes. Not going to lie, I am very jealous of those of you who made that smart decision to be in warmer weather right now. So while I'm trying to get warm, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to talk about accidental hypothermia. If you follow me on Instagram at pomcrit101, you'll recall I posted about this a few months ago, but I think now is a great time to review this, especially since the sad reality is that all of us are going to be seeing impoverished patients coming to the hospital with hypothermia, whether it's because they can't pay their utility bill or because they're just simply homeless. In fact, We have someone on our service right now who doesn't have a place to stay. They ended up being essentially buried under the snow and ice from the storm we had last night. Thankfully, EMS was tipped off in time, and although they're still critically ill, there's a chance that they might turn around. Okay, so let's get started. You're on call. The ED calls you asking for admission for someone who's hypothermic, kind of like the one that I have on my service. Well, what do you do? Well, let's start by defining hypothermia first. When we talk about hypothermia, we're talking about someone who has a core temperature of less than 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. That hypothermia is mild if their temp is between 32 to 35 degrees Celsius or 90 to 95 Fahrenheit. Moderate if 28 to 32 degrees Celsius or 82 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And severe if less than 28 degrees Celsius or 82 degrees Fahrenheit. So the key to remember here is that 28 degrees Celsius or 82 degrees Fahrenheit is our cutoff for severe hypothermia. Now, in the trauma patient, this changes a little bit. They will actually be considered to be severely hypothermic if their temperature is less than 32 degrees Celsius or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So the non-traumatic patient, severe hypothermia is 28 degrees Celsius or 82 degrees Fahrenheit. And the traumatic patient, it's severely hypothermic if it's less than 32 degrees Celsius or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. All right, so how does hypothermia even work? Well, if we go back to the basics, we know that we generate heat by cellular metabolism. This is mostly done in the heart and liver, but we can also lose heat, and this is from the skin and lungs via evaporation, radiation, conduction, and convection. Now, convective heat loss to cold air and conductive heat loss to water are actually the most common mechanisms for accidental hypothermia. So in response to that cold stress, the hypothalamus will stimulate heat production via shivering, and there'll also be an increase in thyroid, catecholamine, and adrenal activity. There'll also be vasoconstriction to help minimize heat loss. Now, someone who's hypothermic will actually have decreased tissue metabolism, but the shivering occurs to help offset that. As the neurologic function declines, usually by a temp of 35 degrees Celsius, shivering is going to become less effective and eventually it's going to stop. So how does your hypothermic patient present? Well, if the hypothermia is mild, they may be confused, they may be tachycardic, and they can actually have an increased cardiac output. They'll be tachypnic, they can have increased secretions as well, they're going to shiver as that's the normal response, and they'll have a hyperglycemia. They'll bleed easily and you can have a leukopenia and thrombocytopenia. They may also have bladder atony and a cold diuresis, 
and they can also present with an ileus, pancreatitis, or stress ulcers, as well as some liver dysfunction. Now, if the hypothermia is moderate, these patients are going to be much more lethargic, or they may even be obtunded on presentation. You're going to see changes on your EEG, and this is where your cardiac output will start to decrease, and they may even be bradycardic. Atropine is not going to help you here. If you get an EKG in this patient population, you may see something called a J-wave or an Osborne wave, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. And they may not even be shivering if they're cold enough, and they can have rigid muscles as well as hypoventilation. Now, severely hypothermic patients oftentimes will present like as if they're in a coma, and they will be in shock. Some of them may even present in V-fib, and we usually see this if their temp is below 28 degrees Celsius or 82 Fahrenheit, or asystole, and that can happen if their temp is below 20 degrees Celsius or 68 degrees Fahrenheit. They can be apneic on presentation, and if you get an x-ray, they may look like they have pulmonary edema. They'll have an AKI, and then here's something that's interesting. When we have our cardiac arrest patients where we induce hypothermia at times, those patients may develop hyperglycemia. But here, these ones can either be hypo or hyperglycemic. And just like in moderate hypothermia, they'll have muscle rigidity. So don't be fooled into thinking that they're already in rigor mortis. All right, so let's go back to our hypothetical patient. Let's say they came in with a temperature of 27 degrees Celsius. So we know they qualify for severe hypothermia. How are you going to manage them? Well, first thing first, you have to be very careful when you move these patients. No one is as sensitive as the hypothermic patient. Even the smallest movement can induce an arrhythmia, including V-fib. Now, the best way to get an accurate temperature in this patient is to use an esophageal probe. The one thing you absolutely do not want to do is to use a rectal probe. Why? Well, if you put a probe up the rectum, there can be feces in there, and those feces can be cold. This can actually give you a falsely low temperature. You're also going to want to get basic blood work, an EKG, a chest x-ray. You should expect to see a metabolic acidosis. And if the hypothermia is severe enough, remember your sugar can either be high or low. You should expect to see a leukopenia, a thrombocytopenia. This is due to splenic sequestration. But you will see an increased hemoglobin and hematocrit. And here's something nifty to remember. For every one degree in Celsius that the temperature has dropped, your hematocrit will actually increase by 2%. Now, as we mentioned earlier, you may see that J wave on EKG. What is the J wave or the Osborne wave? This is a positive deflection that you're going to see at the J point, and that's going to be where the QRS joins the ST segment. And don't forget getting a chest X-ray because that can show you aspiration pneumonia, uh, pulmonary edema, congestion. Now, if your hypothermic patient does need a central line, please do not place an IJ. Why is a femline preferred here? Simply for the fact that you're going to avoid inducing any arrhythmias. Also, the severely hypothermic patient is going to be one that you intubate early. And this can actually help with some of those cold-induced secretions or bronchorrhea that this patient may have. And remember, atropine has no role here. All right. How do we warm the hypothermic patient? And I can promise you guys, this is going, there's going to be at least one question about this on someone's boards. So first things first, you have to be very careful when you move them out of the cold environment, like we talked about earlier. 
make sure to keep them in the horizontal position as you're moving them out of that cold environment. Now, if your patient's only mildly hypothermic, you can use what's called passive external rewarming. What does this mean? You just put them in a warm room, a temp of at least 28 degrees Celsius or 82 degrees Fahrenheit, get all their wet clothing off and cover them with blankets. Now, if that mildly hypothermic patient is not rewarming or the rewarming isn't happening quickly enough, meaning less than 0.5 degrees Celsius per hour, or they're actually moderately hypothermic, then we use what's called active external rewarming. So this is where we apply external heat or forced warm air, just like the bear hugger. What is key here is that we don't rewarm the whole body at the same time. The torso gets priority. Why? We do this to lessen the degree of core temperature after drop. What does that even mean? Well, cold blood from the extremities is going to return to the core and that can actually drop the temperature more. So towards the torso gets rewarmed first. Do not forget that. Also, don't forget that once you bring this moderately hypothermic patient into the warm environment, you induce peripheral vasodilation. This can worsen your blood pressure, and they can even throw these patients into a fatal arrhythmia like VFib. So, what if your patient is severely hypothermic, like our hypothetical patient? Or what if they're moderately hypothermic and they're just not rewarming, or it's happening too slowly, less than 2 degrees Celsius per hour? This is where we use active internal rewarming. What does that mean? Well, we use warmed isotonic crystalloid fluid. We usually go for a temperature of 40 to 42 degrees Celsius. Do not use room temperature fluids here. This will actually drop the temperature further. And we'll also use warmed and humidified oxygen. You can irrigate the pleural and peritoneal cavities with warmed isotonic crystalloids as well, but there's no role for gastric, colonic, or bladder irrigation. You can use endovascular warming devices, and if things are still not getting better, you can put these patients on bypass or ECMO. One thing I want to remind you guys, rewarming is not without its complications. You can get hypotensive, they can develop a cardiomyopathy, multiple electrolyte abnormalities, arrhythmias, and you can also get rhabdo. So what if our hypothermia patient codes? Do we do things just like we do with any other patient that codes? No, things are a little different here. Remember that standard ACLS protocol tells us, well, you should resume compressions right away if we don't have a pulse, meaning you're waiting maybe a second or two before you get back on the chest. Well, in the hypothermic patient, we actually are allowed to wait up to one whole minute to assess for that pulse for that return of circulation before we get back on the chest. If you don't have a pulse after one minute, then go ahead and resume compressions. You know how we have that Doppler available during a code to listen for those faint pulses? Well, this is one of those situations where you shouldn't just rely on the Doppler, but you should also have a bedside echo present. Why? Because if you have that cardiac contractility on the echo, no matter how weak, or you have those pulses by Doppler, don't start compressions. Now, what if we have what looks like an organized rhythm, but there's no pulse? Well, normally we get back on the chest. Again, not in this patient. In the hypothermic patient, you should not start compressions because even though that patient may be in PEA, it's likely transient and it's possible there's still perfusion present. If you were to just go ahead and start compressions, you could totally disrupt that perfusion. However, if the rhythm does convert to asystole from PEA, yes, you should go ahead and start compressions. A couple of other important notes that we need to discuss. 
No epinephrine or levofed is going to be your first choice presser here if they're in shock. And you should expect to see arrhythmias resolve as the patient is being rewarmed. We don't worry about pacing these patients if they're bradycardic unless that bradycardia is persisting despite the temperature improving up to 32 to 35 degrees Celsius. Now, what if you're coding your patient and they go into a shockable rhythm? I mean, the next thing we're going to do is go ahead and shock them. Sure, you can do that, but manage your expectations. That shock is likely not to work unless their temperature is at least 30 degrees Celsius. All right, let's finish up by just going over what are some of the factors that predispose our hypothermic patient to have a worse prognosis. Well, if they became hypothermic because of asphyxia, for example, if they were a drowning victim, or even say they were buried under an avalanche, or if they had an unwitnessed cardiac arrest, their prognosis is going to be worse. If they present with hyperkalemia, lactic acidosis, if they present in shock, if they're elderly, meaning above the age of 75, if they have an AKI, or if their fibrinogen is less than 50, if their ammonia is greater than 420, or if they have a hypernatremia, these are all reasons to expect that their prognosis is not going to be good. So guys, I just want to say, as the weather gets more brutal, it's not a matter of if you will take care of a hypothermic patient, it's a matter of when. I hope this overview helped everyone understand the nuanced management of the hypothermic patient. And on that note, I think my toes are finally warm. I hope everyone has a very happy holiday with loved ones. And for those of you working this weekend, believe me, I'm right there with you. I hope everyone stays safe. And again, if you have questions about this topic or any of the others we've discussed on previous episodes, feel free to email me at poemcrit101 at gmail.com or message me on Instagram at poemcrit101. Don't forget to follow me there as well if you like what you hear and make sure to watch that space for a gigantic series on some of the most requested topics coming up. I'll catch you all next time.